Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fundamentals Podcast. I am your host, Harley. Joining me on this episode is film journalist, author and podcaster, Helen O'Hara. That's right, I got to sit down with Empire's very own Geek Queen to talk about one of the most epic things in all of science fiction, and that is, of course, Dune. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Dune is a novel that was released by Frank Herbert in 1965 and would forever change the world of science fiction. We, of course, dive into the book, what it has meant for the genre, as well as the characters, the themes, and so much more. We even get to talk about some of the adaptations, including some of the less successful ones in the past, and the more recent one directed by Denny Villeneuve, which at the time of recording should come out just over a week from this episode, that is October 21st. It's such a fun conversation, and I'm just absolutely thrilled that I got to speak with Helen, especially as someone who is a fan of all things Empire, and as someone who has recently enjoyed her book, Women versus Hollywood. We do talk a little bit about that, but I just wanted to say up front, I think it's a fantastic book, and if you enjoy this conversation and you like what Helen's all about, then I highly recommend you go and check out that book. So, without further ado, let's just get straight into the episode. This is June with Helen O'Hara. Hello, Helen, and welcome to the Fundamentals podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Brilliant. So I reached out to you uh, with a specific topic in mind, actually, because I'm a big fan of the Empire podcast and I've been listening for a while. And um, we've got a pretty big release in cinema coming out soon, it's safe to say. It's a a property that has been tried to be adapted a number of times, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll get into that. I just thought it'd be a really cool topic to talk about because some people may have never heard of this or know what the fuss is, and that is the uh, the sci-fi novel, Dune. So I thought to kind of kick us off, I'd love to know, well, yeah, what was your introduction to this sci-fi epic? Well, it was always kind of there in the background. I come from a long line of nerds. Um, that's <laughs> unfair, but no, my dad, is, my dad is a geek. He had a proper collection of sci-fi and fantasy on his shelves as I was growing up. So, you know, because of just the thickness of the book, you, you could instantly <laughs> see Dune there basically from, from as far back yeah. as I can remember being able to read. So um, it sure. is a giant of sci-fi literature. It is it is the sort of, you know, the sci-fi Lord of the Rings would not be overdoing it, I don't think. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the kind of book that, I mean, personally, I heard it this year. I listened to the audio book because right. knowing this film was coming out, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute, um, I'm a big fan of the filmmaker and everyone involved. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give the book a listen. And I think it was several hours long, but uh, <laughs> and then I went and looked up and there's a whole bunch of sequels as well. Mm. So there's quite a lot to get through. Yeah, I haven't read all of the sequels, I'll be honest. That there's a point okay. where they, they cease to be Frank Herbert books and become Brian Herbert, who's done great work on them. But, yeah. I, you know, it, it kind of got a little bit away from the central kind of epic thread and, and slightly lost me a little bit. So, yeah. Okay. So at a young age then, were you sort of flicking through it and thought, I'll give this a go? Or was it a bit later on? No, I didn't read it until I was in my teens, which I think is about right. I don't think you want to be picking that one up at 12 or 13, (laughs) you know. Um, But so I was probably 14, 15 before I got into it. And I think I probably had a couple of false starts before I, before that. And then I read the, the original trilogy kind of back to back. But but it's it's really if if even if you know you only do the first book, I think I feel like that's enough. It's sure. that's where it's really at. Okay, so so what do you think? What do you think it is then about that first book that has made it? I don't know, just so impactful mm. on pop culture since it's released in uh, I think it was nineteen sixty five. It first came out. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been it's been massive. It's a it's a massive influence on Star Wars. It's a massive influence on just sci fi cinema. Um, weirdly, I'm rereading The Wheel of Time at the moment, which is probably something you're going to be okay. talking about in the near future as well. And I feel like <laughs> that you can see a lot of Dune DNA in that as well. So mm. it's kind of everywhere. I think it's it's as it's as um, formative as it is, I think, because it is such detailed world building. It is such right. a well-realized reality. Everything sure. kind of ties together, not in a too neat kind of a way, or well, maybe sometimes, but but generally mm. just in a sense, in a satisfying way, you understand this society coming out of it. You understand, in fact, all these different cultures and how they relate. 
And and that's always fun to just sink your teeth into and, and really escape to a different world entirely. Mm. I, I think I agree, actually, because um, I think that's something that can put people off. I mean, yeah. you mentioned Lord of the Rings is a great comparison of a book that is huge and has amazing characters, but one criticism of it and one that I happen to agree with is that sometimes it's a bit too dense in detail. Yeah. Whereas listening to this book, I got the impression quite quickly of who the characters were, who the different houses and societies were, and you kind of you almost immediately go, oh, okay, this is the world, these are the people, and then you're kind of off to the races in terms of what happens next with all mm-hmm. the characters, and you can get invested a bit easier. Yeah, there's less poetry than Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, less song like, lyrics. Yeah, I was going to say less songs, less history of bits of wood and things like that. You exactly. Know. <laughs> a bit more accessible. That, that's perhaps the tagline, right? More accessible than Lord of the more Rings. More accessible than Lord of the Rings. I mean, yeah, that's probably <laughs> fair. And, and I'm not sure that people will instantly uh, accept that because, you know, one of the things I've actually told my colleague James off for sometimes in the podcast is because he he uh-huh. loves the the language of Dune and some of the, you know, the the character names and, and titles and everything else and he sort of parrots all this stuff and I'm like you are going to put people off because you're making it impenetrable and that stuff is introduced so gradually through the book you know you don't need to know on page one or going into the cinema what a Kwisatch Haderach is it like that right. is someone will tell you it is okay I mean yeah. it doesn't really matter if you understand the words or not you know mm. the, the plot is still pretty comprehensible it's kind of you know, again, obviously Game of Thronesy. Um, it's mm-hmm. Lord mm-hmm. of the Ringsy. It's Wheel of Timesy. It's Star Warsy. It's all there. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. It seems to be something that, as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, this is where yeah, Star Wars got this idea from, or yeah. this is where the Game of Thrones gets its stuff from. And you, you say you can see the sort of pieces coming together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think on that alone, it's worth recommending, right? Oh yeah, I think it's just it's one of these key texts in sci-fi history. So I, I feel like. You know, if, if someone's kind of trying to get into sci-fi or, or isn't sure where to start, you know, you could do a lot worse than Dune. It's not kind of hard sci-fi. It's not the three-body problem. You don't have to have a degree in physics to keep up. Mm. Um, it is right. kind of Game of thrones Like You know, it's basically mm. noble houses going to war and plotting against each other to, to some degree. But then it does have this really detailed ecosystem of the planet Dune, and, and it, yeah. it does kind of get into explaining that and inventing this elaborate, gorgeous fascinating world and that allows you to kind of just you know escape your everyday life and just imagine yourself somewhere else for a bit and that kind of thing is for me one of the key things that that sci-fi should be able to do is just kind of just take you out of your life and and take you somewhere else Um, and I think it does that brilliantly so so yeah it's one of those books I maybe wouldn't give it to people as their very first sci-fi book I, I genuinely probably would still start people with with one of the more accessible and shorter you know, Asimov's or Clark's, a sort of foundation or something, or Rendezvous with Rama. No, no, probably not that. Childhood's End, maybe. Um, okay. But uh, but Dune would definitely be in the top 10 list. Right. 100%. I like what you said there, especially about like the, the idea that it can transport you into another world, mm-hmm. because I do feel like that's kind of a lost art, right? I think it does happen. Like, weirdly, I think that was one of the reasons that Avatar was as massively successful as it is. Mm, okay. Because um, nobody wants to admit to having liked Avatar at the time. But every, everybody <laughs> went to see it, right? Everybody went. So somebody yeah, liked yeah. it. And there were stories at the time of people being actively depressed that they couldn't go to Pandora because they were so swept out, up in this ecosystem, this ecology. Right. And and mm. I think there's elements of that with Dune. You know, you, you're so mm. swept up in this world, you absolutely believe in it. Mm. Because Frank Herbert did have a background in, in biology and did go into all of this kind of system and, and kind of made something that feels real and i think that's one of the reasons when when we talk about the film mm-hmm. you know denis villeneuve was adamant from day one first thing he said mm-hmm. was we're gonna shoot in deserts we're going right. to actual deserts this is not going to be a stage with some sand in it we're going yeah. to a desert and and i think that is one of the absolute correct decisions he made right okay because again it's yeah, for people that perhaps don't know that the whole planet the planet june is a, essentially a giant desert planet you think Tatooine Star Wars yeah. you know, as, a, as a reference point um but yeah I didn't know that about Frank Herbert so he, had, he had a background in biology I, I'm not sure if it was formal or if it was just a sort of very educated layperson um but uh-huh. yeah he got really really fascinated by um I think there was a sort of mission to was it it might have been to actually save some sand dunes near him but there was certainly there okay. was there was a 
a life cycle of a nearby animal that he basically learned all about. And I think that fed into what he came up with about the worms of Arrakis, the sandworms, which are the sort of key um, key native species, basically, to yeah. Dune. Right. And I got the sense that he must have been a, a big fan of history as well, because mm. I got that from listening to particularly the, what happens later on in this story, where it becomes more focused on the natives. Yeah. And, that, and that's like a thing throughout all of history, right? You've got native people and then invading lands yeah, and there's that kind of back and forth. Colonialism, basically. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I don't know about you, I felt like that also helped to kind of put you in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a part of history that we're kind of sadly all too familiar with. So we can almost get straight away the motivations of the characters and, and what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean, look, so Dune's big um, product that is exported around the galaxy is, of course, spice, which is mined in the sand dunes of the planet. It is a natural occurring substance. It has many important effects. So basically, it's anti-aging, make you live for hundreds of years. Um, It's also, and this is incredibly important, something that allows the the navigators between worlds to actually kind of jump through hyperspace. So the the idea of Dune, and this isn't something that the book or the film really dwells on, but they have rejected artificial intelligence entirely. Right. And so they have human people who are trained to be like computers called Mentats, but they have no computers per se. So to leap through hyperspace, you basically need spice because it's psychoreactive and it makes you able to see the future or whatever see see through space and time so um so spice is incredibly important it is by far the most valuable substance in the galaxy it is a very apparent very obvious metaphor for oil at the time yes. the book was written um yeah. and it still works as a very apparent very obvious metaphor for oil because we're still uh, super dependent on fossil mm. fuels despite the fact that we're killing the planet by being so um mm. And Frank Herbert would, would I think, you know, chime with all of that. And I think, if anything, Dune is only getting more relevant, not less, um, because mm. of that as time goes on. Right. I mean, that's definitely something that any classic would have, right, is mm. timeless narratives and things that we can learn further on. Which This is why I love sci-fi so much. I've said it before. I, th- I can't remember what episode it was. I've done all sorts of random topics, if you look through the back catalogue. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it was one conversation we were talking about science fiction and it is this ability to dwell on very human feelings and problems and being able to put them in bigger canvases, bigger yeah. worlds, so that we see them in a more apparent way. And like you say, that there's a great example straight yeah. away. You've got something that's very central to the story. And if you're just only acutely aware of what's going on in the world around you, you can go, oh, I get what, what this is a metaphor for. And who knows, maybe it'll make you think a bit differently as well. Absolutely. And, I, and you know, there are very clear parallels you know to this world right. so the 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 idea of the fremen and paul's role mm. itself is is a little bit lawrence of arabia the now that, yeah. that film i think i think frank herbert would have mostly finished writing dune before that film came out but he definitely had read um the seven pillars of wisdom isn't that the t lawrence book so you know he was aware of that story even beforehand i think the film came out while he was working on dune but i'm pretty sure the, the bones of that you know metaphor were there already um, but yeah, the, the Fremen and and the sort of the Berber tribes, there's a there's a clear clear parallel. There was a lot of controversy about the the new film, in fact. Um, oh yeah. Because there aren't any Middle Eastern North African actors in there, so it's oh. a very you know it's a very mixed cast. It's not all white people. We can have a discussion about a sort of white savior narrative, given that there is there are sort of key white people in key roles, but um, but yeah. So while you have people of colour in in other roles among the Fremen, you don't have specifically Middle Eastern North African people, and that has been an issue for some commentators, and I think fairly mm. so, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, again, well, that's, I guess that's the issue with any kind of adaptation, right, is you're not always going to get everything 100% yeah. correct, which I think is a nice way to then, I guess, talk about some of the adaptations, right, because as we've talked about, it's a huge uh, book, it's had this massive impact as you say if you read it you instantly realize where pretty much all of fantasy and science fiction has come from Mm. in the last you know 60 years wow that's a long time you know (laughs) so yeah of course people are going to try and adapt it but what some people might not know and i think is kind of fascinating is that this is a film that is oh sorry this is a a novel i should say that's had a lot of issues getting adapted Mm. right 
Yeah, there's a lot of heavy lifting to do in terms of that world building. You have to explain yeah. that there's a galaxy, an empire, all of these noble houses that rule specific planets. You have to explain why Dune is important. You have to explain the um, House Atreides, who are our heroes, and their rivalry with House Harkonnen, uh, or Harkonnen, depending on which version of the movie you're seeing, um, <laughs> who are just bad, just the worst people, just awful. Yeah. Then there's the emperor himself. There's the Bene Gesserits, who are the sisterhood, who are kind of witch nun concubine types. I mean, they're kind yeah. of everything. Uh, mm. You know, there's a lot. And then you have to explain the Fremen and their their sort of religion, their, their society uh, and their role in relation to all of this. It's a lot of heavy lifting. So just there, you've got probably like a solid half hour of exposition, at least, right. before you even get into who's who and, and what they're doing. Um, and then you have to have space battles. You have to have giant sandworms. You have to have, um, you know, the, these alien worlds and this this kind of alien civilization being, or not alien, but, you know, far in the future mm. civilization being uh, presented to you. It's it's a lot. It's a lot of work. And that is why um, this new film, I don't think this is a spoiler, is only half <laughs> of the book. So right. uh, he has basically broken the book in half. There is, if you know it well, there is a kind of natural stopping point. That's where he's gone for. Um, okay. And, uh, and I think it's the right thing to do because I think what the, certainly the David Lynch version in what 1984 did was try and fit the entire book into one film and i don't think it does it any favors mm. yeah that's that's kind of what i heard so i was doing a little bit of like research before this and i was reading that apparently there was an attempted version in like the 70s that just ran out of money because yeah as you said they were trying to fit so much in and by that point it was a fairly fresh property so yeah people weren't too keen and yeah. then the 1984 version comes along yeah, so the 70s version uh, was by Alejandro Jodorowsky, who mm. is a very problematic character. If you actually read up on him, he's, he's said some really awful things in the past. But but his attempt at Dune, to be fair to him, was gonzo and bananas. And yes, he burned through pretty much his entire budget in pre-production, hadn't, <laughs> hadn't shot a foot of film. And and he basically right. it it all fell apart when he told the studio that really he he thought it would need to be about fifteen hours long, and this is cool. long before kind of prestige TV made that in any way an option. I mean, obviously, you right. know, this very this very uh, autumn we've got Foundation on TV, and it's going to be like what ten hours on Apple, and it's mm. got all the money in the world poured into it. Wheel of Time, mm. big big deal. Of of course, mm. Lord of the Rings, the the spin off yep. next year. $500 million budget in some reports. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. So, wow. you know, the money being poured into TV now is one thing, but that was not the case in the 70s. It was not an option. And mm. so he must have known on some level. He must have yeah. understood that that would fail. But um, but he certainly didn't act like he knew. So, so yes, <laughs> you know, he'd hired like Salvador Dali to play the emperor. He'd hired uh, yes, H.R. Geiger yeah, yeah. To, to design the mm. furniture for the, the Harkonnens' rooms. You know, he'd really got incredible people involved, but like he didn't have the money for any of it. So, right. yeah, and he couldn't crack the story. If he needed 15 hours, he didn't have the story. No, and that's obviously the key issue, right? Is, as you say, you've got all of that, stuff on top then to layer and and kind of what we've just said already that the, the book has the advantage that it can dive into that mm. you can have separate chapters and moments where you can kind of explain a little bit whereas i feel like in a film obviously it's a completely different way of telling a story mm. you have to keep things moving you have to bring people engaged i was just thinking when you were describing the task that like david lynch had in the 80s if he was going to do a George Lucas and put a credit, you know, a, a crawl in the front, it would have been like half an hour long, <laughs> just going and going. I mean, I've, I correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard some like stories, mm. apparently, of when this came out in the cinema in the 80s, that some people were, in some cinemas were handed out, I think, like guides or maps to things. That does and they were sound like, familiar, yeah. And, and there's just yeah. so much voiceover in it as well. There's just endless, oh, right. endless voiceover to explain mm. kind of what's going on because... Because how else to do it? And I think, you know, I do think they've threaded the needle a little bit better in this new one. Like, no spoilers, but I have seen it. But I think they've, <laughs> they've, you know, they've found a way to give you just enough information. And even if that's meant cutting out some of what you might consider plot elements, for mm -hmm. me, they're 
plot elements that didn't work very well, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, there's it, it's actually it feels a little bit more streamlined and a little bit more elegant to me now. Hmm. Well, that's that's good to hear. I mean, I personally, I'm very very excited for this new version. Um, I've I've not made it a secret on this show that my favorite film currently today is the Blade Runner sequel that Delhi the News behind. And since then, I've just followed him and like all of his filmography. I think it's genius. Mm. So yeah, when I, when I heard that he was coming to do this, I got very excited. I was like, oh, he's doing more sci-fi? Yes, please. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, then I said, listen to the book and now I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, he's a, he's a huge fan of this since he was a teenager. And I right. think his, his only hesitation in doing it was, can I live up to my own teenage dreams? So that was literally the only thing that I think at any point gave him pause in in making this film or indeed give him stress in making this film, you know, beyond the weather, of course, in the desert. But generally speaking, I think that's been his his whole thing. Can I actually deliver what I want to see of Dune? And and that's a great way to be. A hundred percent, because it's as we said, it's a kind of thing that it has everything right. It's got grand spectacle. It's got amazing sort of background and setting and then you've got all of this stuff going on with world building and characters i mean talking about some of the characters i mean i I was quite impressed with how well fleshed out some of them were because listening to it paul atreides is kind of our main hero he goes through a bit of the joseph campbell hero's journey so like you might be listening and think like oh yeah i've heard this before you know the character that does this does that but i thought he did a really a good job of kind of balancing that out and having a slightly fresh take on it in a way yeah so he is a young boy when we meet him he's about 15 Mm. i think in the novel and he you know so there is a coming of age element to this story definitely and a growing up element Mm. but at the same time he's not quite as naive i think as a lot of those heroes like there is a childish side to him and there is a side that is is you know he doesn't know everything about dune but because he has these strange premonitions dreams because he has strange abilities that his mother who is one of these Bene Gesserit witches has been teaching him he has a sort of presence and more of a sense of what's going on than most kids of his age would and I think that's really interesting because I think it's one of the reasons for a start that the the novel is really popular with teenagers because I think it gives them credit for you know being very aware people and not just you know clueless students or whatever you know you know the way some you know the way yeah. you see some teenagers in some films and you're like I feel like I knew more at that age and I don't think these people are meant to be stupid um yeah so so I think Paul is is an attractive teen, teenage character in the sense that he does have a clue He's, he doesn't know everything and he knows that but he also isn't clueless and I like that about him and I think as well he's um He's got a good heart, but is also capable of making mistakes. You know, he has all of these enormous gifts from both his mother and father, but that doesn't mean he doesn't face bigger challenges that are well beyond him. And I think it's a really nice, um, yeah, it's just a really nice um, balance that they have. And one of the things that the book does well, and I think actually this new film does well, mm-hmm. is is make you make it clear that he is loved. He is a character who, you know, he... When we meet him, he has not had to struggle in life. He's a very privileged young man, to use the, the modern kind of phrase. Um, mm-hmm. And yet he still has problems sometimes and feels unheard sometimes. And, you know, so again, for a lot of kind of middle class kids who are lucky enough to have grown up without enormous problems in our lives, that's that's relatable. But it, it does prepare you for the fact that it's not always going to be that easy and mum and dad are not always necessarily going to be there to help. So, mm. you know, it, I, I feel like he's he's a good balance and um and you see also uh, as the, as the story goes on you see what all of these characters around him have kind of contributed to his character and how important right. they all are so so it's it's a model where yes it's the hero's journey but but he has been kind of created by a village if you like yeah uh, do you know that's the thing that really stood out to me was he's given several role models in the in the story which i really like you know cuz he he's with his dad but his dad's kind of slightly estranged from him in a way because as you say it's a privileged household that they live in his dad's it's made clear that this guy has a lot of responsibilities as well as a lot of enemies and a lot of stuff going on so paul is kind of left almost to everyone else you know including his mum, including i think two other male yeah um, so um duncan idaho is almost the sort of cool big brother archetype 
Yeah. Gurney Halleck is is a little bit more of a gruff uncle or slash mm. father figure. Um, uh, Thufir, uh, oh, I can never pronounce his name. One second, let me just look this up. Sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, it's fine. Uh, Thufir Haywat. Haywat, yes. Yeah. Uh, Thufir Hawat is is more of the sort of wise kind of teacher figure, you know. So they all have separate roles, and then Doctor Yue is is kind of just yeah, caring, obviously, kind of. Uh, medically figure but but a kind of reassuring presence almost a, not quite a therapist but but sort of a reassuring uh guy to be there so he has all of those people around him and i think that really helps yeah basically and, and adds some and you do see all of them contribute to the man he becomes especially jessica of course especially jessica because she mm. has basically she's gone against everything she was taught for her whole life because she's in love with Duke Leto, his father, um, because she cares about Paul enormously. She has shared with him secrets that basically no other man knows. And she's trained him in the ways of her order. And, um, and so their relationship is close without being creepy, frankly, you know, the way yeah, some mama's yeah, no, yeah, yeah. boys in some <laughs> stories are a bit creepy. He's not, um, but they do have a, yeah. a nice kind of, mentor-mentee relationship and then later on almost a, a more of a almost more of a just wise counselor um mm. relationship yeah yeah no 100 percent. that that was probably the relationship that i was most impressed with actually listening back mm. thinking about the fact that it was a book written in the 60s um is it's something that we do now and i don't i don't always think it's a good idea necessarily but we still do it as we look through media through the you know old media through a modern lens mm -hmm. and usually you'll find that there's certain characterizations of people or relationships that are you know either problematic or we think that's eh, a bit reductionist yeah as you say quite refreshing when you see the relationship between him and, and his mum it is definitely one of respect yeah um and even towards the end there's a moment where his character changes fundamentally because he goes through something that no one else has ever gone through before and i really enjoyed that moment in the book because you really felt the shift of his the, like you said him becoming a man mm. but it was a different man it was based on experience it was based on all these things that happened yeah and i liked how that after that the relationship between he and his mum did shift but it was still a positive one it was mm. still like you say one of white wise counselor like he'd still go to her for advice and i thought like that's quite refreshing to have a female character that's written in a really positive way like that yeah. at that time yeah, and an authoritative female character because that yeah. is that's what what's really rare is a woman being allowed to exercise authority over men, and that kind of mm -hmm. grows a little bit as the series goes on. But it is it is there. It is a, it is a factor. Um, I mean, he does have his father issues, obviously, with the Duke, and and that's probably mm. inevitable in basically every piece of literature ever. And it's one of my pet <laughs> hates, but I, I get it. But it is you know until really recently we've begun to have some positive interesting nuanced mother child stories but it right. has been really recent because until then you had the selfless mother in the background stories and you had the witch hell mother and that was kind of it you know it was psycho or it was i don't know father of the bride you know with the mother keeping everybody right. sane and and i kind of feel like we're getting into a bit more nuance and we're getting into a bit more detail and we're getting into a bit more uh, interesting roles, you know, that actually explore the mother-child dynamic, which which mm. I think is a good thing just because, you know, again, it's just about diversifying cinema and giving us more interesting stories that we haven't seen a million times. I have seen every variation, I think, on a father complex now. I am I am not quite done. I am still here for it in, in limited cases. I mm -hmm. thought Ad Astra mm -hmm. did it brilliantly, for example. Right. But generally speaking, no to father complexes thank you very much but no <laughs> yeah i do you know i think that's a very fair criticism um yeah it's definitely an, an overplayed trope mm. you know you're not wrong and as you say in this in this story thankfully it's very minor and it's kind of it's kind of brushed over with the fact that, as we said he's got several other male yeah. figures in his life as well so it's as you say raised by a village you kind of get a bit more from it you know, in that sense. Yeah. Um, and, his, and his dad is actually not a terrible person. No, not at all. Well he's, a, he's a very, very good person. He's just a very busy mm. person. And I think that the, the yeah. moments that they do have together are positive and are 
important mm. and, and, and are important, I think, to both. It's not just, oh, it's a remote dad who doesn't care, but but the son, right. me, you know, memorizes every single interaction they have. You get the sense that they, they both memorize every interaction they have and it matters a lot to both of them. And um, and yeah, I, th- I just think that's that's really good. So he, I think he is a really, really positive figure, just a remote one and, and one who, who doesn't have a lot of time for actual family life. Mm. Which, yeah, in a way is is kind of sad yeah. um, in terms of how that goes. But as you say, that's just part of the character and what happens along the way. And I, I also quite like the, 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 excuse me, dynamic that forms later on when he meets the Fremen, because again, that feels like another shift in his character, another lesson that he has to learn where, um, I mean, massive spoilers, by the way, for anyone who's wondering, but it's a massive book. So you probably forget all of this um, if you've not read it by now. But yeah, when he he and his mum are basically left to fend for themselves in this wilderness that is supposed to be just absolutely terrible. And, you know, the chances of survival are like next to nothing. It's, It's hyped up so much before. Which is great because then when it happens, you're almost thinking, "Oh no, how are they going to get out of yeah, this?" Absolutely. Um, and then yeah, then into then enter the fremen, then enter the the people that have survived for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And it's really interesting to see how his character adjusts then as well. You know, he sort of is very good at taking in new information, and that again builds onto him and what he does after what he does with that information. I think is. Just really good. Mm. You know, it's, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I absolutely <laughs> agree. I think you're right. I think it's, um, I think it's weirdly, it's a series that's all about, um, it's a bit 60s in this sense, but it's all about kind right. of growing human potential. So this idea that humanity has rejected artificial intelligence in favor of enhancing human intelligence, and you see that again mm. and again in the books. And you also see it again and again in, in certainly the latest movie where it's all about people who have been trained or trained themselves or become expert in doing one thing brilliantly um, and doing it really well. And Paul, and I think coming from that Benny Gesserit's uh, training system, tr- it tries to be a sponge. You're absolutely right. He tries to absorb everything. He wants to learn everything. He wants to understand. And in fairness, sometimes he wants to understand so he can use it against people and so he can mm-hmm. weaponize it. Um, because of the, the situation that he's in and, and the world that he lives in. But but there is this search, an endless search for knowledge and understanding and growth and development and evolution is a big, big theme across all of the books. Um, so yeah, I think, that, I think it, again, it's just, it's a cleverness and a layering and something that's kind of relatable. Um, you get a lot of this in sci-fi where people are just growing you know in sci-fi if there's a character who's immortal for some reason whether you know because they're a robot or something or because they're mm. there's regeneration chambers or something it, mm. it tends to always be about this process of becoming better and right. and dune does that even without resurrection or immortality well mm. maybe some immortality but it and some resurrection actually come think but but um but yeah it does it with this this eternal struggle to just improve humanity and not just improve our technology, and I think that is a really interesting approach um, to to the genre. So so yeah, so I think, and also just Paul is a, is a is a good person. He's a polite boy. He's a good guest. You know, he's going to try and fit in with his hosts. So I feel like it works on on a number of different levels that he, you know. On a, on a sort of practical level, he has to get along with the Fremen because otherwise he and his mum are done for. On a yeah. on a personal level, he is a polite, well-brought-up young man who wants to, you know, do the right thing. And then on a sort of more cold, ambitious um, survival level, he's going to take what he can and use what he has to to get the job done. 100%. And I feel like all of that, then weaves its way nicely into the kind of almost um, sort of chosen one narrative mm. that's somewhat in the book. Oh yeah, big so, time. Yeah, but I, but I th- again, I felt like it was earned mm. because of all of that character building and because of those themes that you've just commented on there. Because they're, they're they're woven in so nicely. When Paul does arrive at his you know destiny, if you will, it doesn't feel like you know it doesn't just feel like you're going. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Now he gets powers and he saves the day it's it's like no it's all been building up to this and it just makes sense 
you know, when that all happens at the end. Well, here's what I love about that. So, and I, I hope this isn't a spoiler. I don't feel like it is because it's it's revealed quite early in the books. So the idea is that the Bene Gesserit have been crossbreeding, essentially, noble houses throughout the history of this civilization in order to get to the Kwisatz Haderach, and that, who is their chosen one, if you like. I think that's probably a slightly easier word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Um, and they believe they're about a generation away. So Lady Jessica, Paul's mum, when she was married to Duke Leto, she was put there on purpose because her genes and his genes were supposed to bring forth a daughter who they had a planned husband for in another noble family. And their child was due to be the Kwisatz Haderach. So Paul was born a boy because his mum basically knew that Duke Leto really wanted a son and loved Duke Leto and therefore wanted to give him a son. So that is not in the plan. Paul Mm. is an aberration. Paul should not have happened. Paul is out of step with the Bene Gesserit breeding program that's been going on for thousands of years, right? So there's always a caveat to his chosen one status. There's always a question mark over it. Is he actually the chosen one? Or is he essentially the chosen, he he was due to be the chosen one's mum, right? That's what Mm. should have happened according to the plan. So while he, he has some powers, maybe the real chosen one would have had more powers, you know? And there's this weird... Uh, yeah, just asterisks over everything that he does. Is that what should have happened? Is Was that the plan? And I just think that's brilliant because it actually gives them, first of all, it gives them a lot to play with in the sequels. But also it does right. it does genuinely put a little bit of a question mark over everything that happens um, because it's not quite as clear cut uh, as, you know, I don't know, as, as I'm, I'm trying to think of a chosen one narrative now and I'm blanking on all of them. <laughs> but like, for example, the... The Matrix, I think, does the Dune thing as well, uh-huh, where it sort uh-huh. of tries its best to make you think, well, he's not the chosen one. He's just a guy who has some cool powers. Mm. I think that is also riffing on Dune. I really do. Oh, probably is. I mean, actually, that has been a subject, funny enough, mm. in a previous episode. Um, and side note, very excited for number four. So excited. Um, don't know what's what that's all about. We talked briefly about it because it was... About a year ago, we did that episode and so little was known and still so little is known, even though the trailer's come out. But there you go. But you're right. That's another example. If people are listening and they're like, oh, yeah, I love I love The Matrix. You know, I love that kind of sci-fi thing. Straight away, here's another example, like you say, of a of something that, yeah, you're right. Definitely in the same way that The Matrix played with the kind of chosen one narrative. And we talked about it again. People want to hear it please go back because my guest Josh brought some really interesting points up about what they do with that narrative in the sequels. Um, And yeah, you're right. I feel like in this book, it feels like Frank Herbert was very aware of that already as a trope. And, and as you say, I'd I'd forgotten actually, I'm glad you brought that history up because I'd forgotten that that was, yeah, that was a a part that was hanging over his head this whole time of like, you're not supposed to be here. Um, Because correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that how the, beginning of the book opens initially he's being tested by some of the Benny Gesserit and they're really like just no this guy's gonna fail we don't like him and it's it, you really feel he's already on the back foot yeah so it's not I don't think it's quite the beginning but it's pretty early on it's mm. it's um it's you know before they they all uh, arrive on Arrakis but he is tested by the mother superior of the Benny Gesserit order uh Helen Mohayam no relation to mm-hmm. me um and um <laughs> yeah and 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 there is that real caveat and she does shout or she does tell off lady jessica for having a son at that point she's like you had orders you were it was we were clear we had this you know i thought we talked about this guy you you were supposed to have a daughter so there is that real um yeah sense of putting both of them on the back foot and and not being convinced by paul at all now he does you know face that test um and she decides not to kill him on the spot so that's good spoiler but it's not quite as, um, yeah, it, 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 he's not what she expected. He's not what she wanted. Mm. This was not supposed to happen for another generation. It almost gives him a bit of an underdog feel then, doesn't it? In a way, because you're almost like you're happy then that he kind of is able to push through that in some form. Um, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I think I think he is uh, in a weird way for the, again, son of a noble house, kind of an underdog, <laughs> you know, and, and they do put him yeah. through the ringer. They, they do set his enemies against him. So the... The Harkonnen or the Harkonnen, again, depending on which mm-hmm. which one you're watching, um, are just grotesque, awful, mm. also incredibly over-resourced. Um, 
they have kind of the world at their fingertips. The emperor is not exactly a fan of the Atreides family either and is not necessarily going to help them out because they've been essentially causing problems in parliament for him. Um, and, you know, Paul himself is going to have to navigate not just the hostile terrain of Dune, but the hostile sort of geopolitical terrain of his entire galaxy, essentially, to stay yeah. alive. So, you know, the kid's got some problems. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. And, that, and that's it. That's sort of the other half of the book when mm -hmm. things pick up towards the end is, again, I'd almost forgotten about it when it got to that point. It's like, oh, yeah, there's an emperor. And there's like a whole other part of this world that he's got to get through yet. Mm -hmm. And how he sort of navigates that as well is, is really interesting and clever. And it's a, a funny mix of all the things that he's picked up along the way. Um, and yeah, when you mentioned about the, the House Harkonnen or whatever, if people want to pick me up on it, I, you can at me, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I seem to just remember, uh, is it Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is the big... Yeah, the Baron, yeah. The big, the big baddie. Um, the way they describe him in the book just made me laugh so much because he's described as like, not just like obese, but like obese to the point where like a, a spacesuit is keeping him together. And like, just the way he keeps describing it, it was kind of like, okay, we, we get it. We get it. This this guy's over-resourced, as you say, yeah. but just, just kind of made me chuckle when I was listening to he's, it. He's so, like, basically the idea in, in the book, anytime he comes out, the idea is he's super physically grotesque. And not just that yeah. he's that he's overweight. It is, uh, yeah. it is the result of some stuff that's gone on in the past, which is explored in some of the sequels. I won't get into, but... Uh, um, okay, all right. But he is look abnormal looking for a human i think it's that it's not that yeah. he's just merely fat because i don't think it's, yeah. it's sort of fat shaming and i want to be clear on that no, he's no, he's yeah. like a grotesque human and certainly that's mm -hmm. one thing the david lynch film really leaned into and they've got him with these kind of separating boils all over his face and body <laughs> and he's also described as a pedophile in case you just didn't hate him enough i mean and a rapist <laughs> and a sadist he's like it, yeah. When people talk about the worst, what they actually mean is the Baron Bar uh, Baron Harkonnen because he is just <laughs> absolutely the worst. I know it just it really cracked me up. I was like, "Yeah, okay, we get it. This this guy is the worst person in the history of the universe of people." I just but, think you know, redeeming features yeah. totally overrated as far as the Harkonnens yeah. are concerned. They're <laughs> just they're just bad. And then you know, it's he's not mm. even uh, the only one of them. There, there's also his nephew, yeah. the Beast Raban. Right, uh, yeah, and yeah. The beast Raban is named because he's just mm -hmm. uh, a brutal, savage, you know, mm -hmm, bully mm -hmm. and sadist again and rapist again. I mean, they're just not mm. a good people. Not good people. No, not at all. I don't think any of those will be getting any um, sympathetic origin stories in the future. God, I hope not. If they ever do a sympathetic <laughs> Baron origin story, I am going to just burn down the studio responsible. I'm not that I'm going to write a strongly worded letter. To be <laughs> uh, I wouldn't put it. I, I wouldn't blame you, basically, Helen, if you did. <laughs> so I'm just deliberately poking your buttons now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, it's brilliant. I, I love that. And I love there's so much more to, to this world to, mm -hmm. to explore. I mean, we haven't even talked much about the Fremen, and that's like a whole other, whole other thing in itself. When you get to that point in the book, I felt like I really enjoyed that side of mm -hmm. it as well, learning about these people who had lived in this hostile environment for, for centuries, essentially. It's really cool when they're, when they're introduced. Yeah, yeah they are. They're, they're, I mean, again, they're very much drawn from Berber culture and other desert cultures uh, here on Earth. It's all kind of rooted a lot in Earth history. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's a really just memorable, incredible people because they, they have to be tough. They have to be water-obsessed. So no water is ever wasted and spitting is a sign of mm. great honor because you are wasting your body's water on someone. So that's, you know, that's mm. a big thing. Um, and, and, you know, and yet they also have a kind of a vibrant culture. They have a very uh, important religion to them and they have this um, real sense of community that I think is, is maybe lacking from a lot of what we've seen elsewhere uh, in the world. So, so there's a real sense of, I mean, again, they have to work together to survive. One person alone could never do it. And what also the, the book and the films lean into is this idea that, well, they've had to keep themselves away from the Harkon Harkonnen. When they ruled Arrakis, they basically brutalized and murdered wherever they could. So the, the Fremen who survived have mostly just kept as far away from them as possible. Sure. But what they've done is um, develop these hidden communities kind of underground or semi-underground 
um, develop this culture secretly, but also turn themselves into just the toughest guys in the galaxy. Because they, again, they have to be to survive this hostile environment, to survive against the Harkonnen. And it is a, it is that, that's basically Duke Leto's hope. He thinks, okay, I'm being sent to this planet. I feel like it's a trap because the emperor doesn't like me. So why is he sending me to the single most important planet in the entire universe? The one source of spice, which our entire civilization depends upon. Why would he send me there if it wasn't some kind of trap? And he kind of knows that. And he knows that the Harkonnen aren't going to make it easy for him. He knows they're going to sabotage or remove their equipment. When they go, they're going to make it difficult for him to mine spice as he has to do. Um, his hope, his one hope really, is to actually ally, ally himself with the Fremen and, and form some kind of bond with them. And, and that's interestingly what Paul ends up doing. It's what Paul ends up having to do from necessity, but also it's as the book goes on, that will become really, really important because the Fremen are incredibly tough, incredibly skilled fighters um, and have resources at their command that the uh, Harkonnen never really guessed at. So, you know, it's it that's what turns the tide. It's not just Paul himself, it's his ability to mobilize the Fremen essentially against the whole universe. Yeah, this is it. It's it's kind of that thing um that <laughs> it's my my brain just instantly flashed on um Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yes, except yeah. like not cute, but like the yeah. Ewoks, but on a galactic <laughs> a more galactic scale. I mean yeah. Yeah. Look, this is you know this is something that I think has been an uh, American preoccupation certainly since Vietnam, and it might be one of the reasons that Dune has endured as well as it has is this idea right. of a native guerrilla fighting population just kicking a superpower's butt. You know that yeah. that has obviously had resonance in in the U.S. and that's explicitly where the Ewoks came from and and many many films since then. But but it, it is kind of prefigured in Dune, and and I think it is down to this. Well, again, the T.E. Lawrence connection, you know, these were an overlooked people, nomads in the desert. They're no danger to anyone. We don't have to worry about them, do we? Yeah. And yet, so I think there's, there's, a, you know, pre-parallel in history, and then it would become even more relevant after Vietnam. But, um, but yeah, again, remarkably prescient on, um, on Herbert's part. Yeah, uh, tremendously so. You know, it's like uh, almost wonder if he was a Benny Gesserit himself. You know, is <laughs> able to see that far ahead. But it's fascinating, and um, I think again, it it comes back to what we were saying earlier about this idea of human intelligence mm -hmm. of building something. I mean, I'm I'm personally a huge fan of AI as a subject because I just think it's fascinating yeah. and it's a big thing in in um, science fiction. But yeah, it's interesting to come across something that a lot of its themes and characters and importance is going completely in the opposite direction yeah. to what most of other sci-fi does. Yeah, and I think it's it's a way to avoid some of the traps of the genre, I think, and, and the, yeah. the easy, mm. slightly lazy writing you get sometimes in any genre, but, but in sci-fi mm -hmm. where, you know, oh, a supercomputer did it and ran away is kind of you know, a get-out clause for, <laughs> for sort of everything. I think it's one of the the really interesting approaches to AI is to have none in the same right. way that something like the um, Ian M. Banks approach, which is, yes, we absolutely have AIs. They rule our entire civilization and they're also funny, you know, is, yeah. a, is also an interesting <laughs> approach. Um, but, even, you know, but either way, both, actually both the culture. So again, there's another reference, I think, in the culture as well as um, everything else to Dune. Mm -hmm. There are always going to be certain people who have certain skills like Liam Neeson yes. and Taken who you, you have to get in sometimes no matter how powerful your your yeah. your AI there's there are certain individuals that you need to rely on when the going gets tough and I love that about the culture I've always thought that was really funny um in there but um but I also think it's brilliantly done in Dune that there are people who kind of go beyond the bounds of what's possible and that's where the magic happens I suppose in a way Absolutely. So for people listening, then, uh, I mean, the film, the uh, film that is actually due to come mm. out, I think main cinemas, I believe it's like the next month or so. Yeah, October 21st, I think, here in the UK. Um, it's already out in France and Russia. 
Ooh. So it's okay. uh, it's already beginning its its rollout around the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's October twenty first for us. So that will be pretty close to when this episode comes out. So if people aren't already sold, I guess why why would you say this is worth going to see? Well, um, so I, as I've mentioned, it's Denis Villeneuve who's been a massive fan of this book since he was a teenager. Um, he mm-hmm. is only doing the first half in this film um, because because he wants to do it justice. And I think having seen it now twice, I think that's the right call. And I just, I'm desperate for him to get enough money at, at the box office to make part two. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> he's got an extraordinary cast. Now, leaving aside the fact that, you know, man fanciers like myself, like most of the world's <laughs> handsomest men are in this movie, you know. Um, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. I mean, Timothy Chalamet for the younger ones, Oscar Isaac for the older ones, Jason Momoa for I feel like everybody um mm-hmm. rebecca ferguson <laughs> and zendaya for the lady fanciers out there i mean it's a great cast but it's also a great cast of really good actors and they were all sort of fans of each other so i was on set of this and i wrote, then i wrote the empire feature about this so i got to talk to all of them and just you know jason momoa was geeking out because um not only did he have josh brolin in the room but then javier bardem walks in and he said it was yeah. like he said it was like a silverback gorilla just walking into the room and kind of, you know, <laughs> batting on his chest. And everybody was like, "Ooh, we got to raise our yeah. game now!" Ooh. You know, yeah. so so it's a great great cast. And he also, like I said, he shot in deserts. He shot in in real sand dunes, in real you know rock formations, everything else. Then when he came back and he built the sets um, outside Budapest. Uh, like they're they're the most enormous sets I've been on. I, I've been on Marvel movies. I've been on Harry Potter movies. I've been on Wonder Woman. I've been on big big movies. Yeah. Um, these things. It was like three hundred meters long. I think some of these sets, you know, and they had full scale, mm. not quite flying, but certainly you know moving parts, ornithopters, the the sort of helicoptery type um, mm-hmm. dragonfly looking things that they fly around in. I had more fun, honestly. I, I spent about an hour just playing with the props. They had the gom jabar, the needle that they yeah. threatened Paul with. They had the pain box. They had Chris knives. Oh, my God. It was great. Anyway, enough about me. The point is they have they put so much care and attention and detail into mm. even these really tiny, you know, little things on the film that I felt like, I felt like Denis Villeneuve's passion for it had basically communicated itself to everybody on the project. And that was just, it, when you see that on a film set, and you don't always, but you you often do, because, you know, directors tend to work on stuff they're passionate about. But but when you see it, it is just, it's a magical thing. And it, and it just makes you really excited for the film. And um, and yeah, I just, I just think if you like Dune, the book, um, or you think you'd like Dune, if you're listening to this, this is mm-hmm. a really, really good adaptation of that book. This is faithful. It is respectful. It is not slavish, but mm-hmm. it, 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 I feel like it captures the essence of the book in a way that I don't think the David Lynch did. And I don't think, honestly, Jodorowsky would have done. Mm. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that's the highest praise you can give, I think, to, to anything like that is what you've just said there, the, the care and attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're going to faithfully adapt anything, it's yeah, capturing the essence, as you say. I'm personally, again, super excited for it because I'm a huge fan of the filmmaker and, and this series. So, yeah, by the time this, I'm going to be there day one, <laughs> <laughs> October 21st. So, I hope everybody else is as well. Um, but I guess, Helen, is, is there anything else you want us to comment on with this book? Or? Well, I mean, no, not really. I, I did embarrass myself recently when I was, I basically um, <laughs> built a new study. You can see it in the background, obviously, but uh, re- mm-hmm. uh, listeners obviously can't. But um, I built this new study and put up a load of bookshelves and moved all my books up here. And I was embarrassed to discover that as well as having an ebook of Dune for ease of reference, I also have a paperback mm-hmm. book of Dune for, I don't know, a while ago. And then I've, I bought mm-hmm. um, the folio edition hardback last year so i feel like that qualifies me as a fan i didn't even realize i was that much of a fan but it turns out oops day of from what we've discussed i think there's worse things to to love right i think so definitely and it's a very nice folio edition so no regrets there you go it will go very nicely on uh, on your shelves i I imagine exactly But um, yeah, speaking of, I think, where can the good people find you? I know you, I wanted to mention it. I'm mm. sure you will. But 
you have recently brought out a book, which, by the way, I have listened to and I thought was absolutely fantastic. Oh, and I can see three, four copies behind you. Oh, there. there's six or seven, actually. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah. So I wrote a book called Women versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's kind mm -hmm. of an attempt to sum up the history of women in Hollywood, past, present, future. No, no big deal. Um, I literally <laughs> starting in the silent era and sort of romping through. So it's, it's very much an introduction to, because obviously, you know, every chapter could be about three books and has been about three books for serious scholars. But it's, it's kind of an attempt to put the current situation in context, like why are over 80% of films uh, male led? Why are almost 90% of films most years directed by men? Why are women a minority of composers and cinematographers and producers and every other job going? Why are female stars paid half, roughly, what their male star equivalents are, irrespective of box office? So I just wanted to kind of get into some of those things and kind of lay out the situation as far as I could, as far as I can understand it, talk to people involved and... Um, and yeah, hopefully, like I said, it, I would I would consider it personally an introduction to all of these things, but it'll give you like a framework to hang any bigger, thicker, harder to read books on, um, hopefully afterwards. Um, and then also, of course, I'm on the Empire podcast every week. Um, I'm also doing a Women versus Hollywood podcast at the moment. That's a limited series just to sort of develop some of the, the themes of the book. And mm -hmm. um and yeah, I'm on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara. Oh, I should say as well, the book is out here in the UK, um, but it's coming out in the US in November. So if you're, oh. if you're over in the US and Canada, it will be there on November 9th, I believe. Brilliant. I mean, I highly recommend it to people. Uh, I found it quite eye-opening, to oh, be thanks. honest with you. Um, a little bit depressingly so. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I thought it was really good. It was very balanced and just, yeah, I, I came away from it thinking wow um there's so much i didn't realize or know so yeah I, I highly recommend people go and check that out oh thank you very much that's really impressive oh you're, ver you're very welcome and of course the empire podcast um big fan over here listen every week so people if you don't already know empire or the show what are you doing go, go and follow <laughs> right now <laughs> yeah we're, we're we just talk films um and nonsense every every single week uh, well every single week mm -hmm. on the podcast and uh, every month in the magazine it's uh, it's a lot of fun it really is. Well, Helen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm just honestly floored that you said yes. And I've had a lovely time. I hope you have oh, me as well. too. Thank you so much for having me. That's great. Thank you. And there we have it. A huge thank you to Helen O'Hara for coming on to the show and sharing your love of all things June. I hope you guys really enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to go and check out the book or even the film as it comes out in cinema soon. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I mean, I just certainly trust Helen's taste in movies and especially on this given subject, given how much she loves it. So I think that's a recommendation in itself that's worthy following up. Uh, speaking of, of course, you've heard about her book, Women vs. Hollywood. Again, I highly recommend you go and check it out. I'll put links in the show notes where you can go and find it. Uh, I personally got the audio book, which is just my preferred way of going through books these days. And she reads it, which is a nice touch. So definitely go and check that out today. As always, I want to give a big thank you to the resident artist of the podcast, Alex, for designing the artwork. If you like what you see in the logo, again, the show notes, I've put links to his details. You can go and reach out to him and commission him for your own work. If you are enjoying the podcast, then by all means, let me know. Any and all feedback is greatly appreciated. You can reach out to me in a number of ways. The best way to do that is really by either Twitter or email. Those are the ones that I tend to pay more attention to, if I'm being honest. But if you're on Instagram, that's totally fine. Instagram and Twitter handles are at FundamentalsPod. You can, of course, email me at Fundamentals at Yahoo.com. Again, links in the show notes for all of those things. If you would like to go that one step further and leave me a delightful five-star review on your favorite podcasting app, then, well, who am I to stop you? I would, in all seriousness, greatly appreciate that. Uh, you would, of course, earn a shout-out on the podcast if you do that, because really it is the least that I can do to say thank you for your continued support of the show. And if you would like to support the show, the best way to do that, really, is to just tell a friend, tell a neighbour, tell an enemy, tell both Harkonnen and Fremen, if you will. Whoever you decide... I'm sure they'll greatly appreciate the recommendation. 
it goes a long way. Word of mouth is honestly the best way to promote podcasts, and I'm just grateful for anyone who decides to do so. That is it from me. I will be back again in a few weeks' time with a completely different guest on a completely different topic. So until then, stay tuned and stay safe.